Hi everyone, welcome to MedTalks, where we are continuing our finals countdown series to provide you with useful knowledge for finals and your years beyond as a doctor. My name is Dr. Satchin Patel and I'm a junior doctor currently working in the NHS. The last couple of episodes we have talked in depth about the thyroid gland and we are continuing our endocrinology talks with disorders of the parathyroid glands and the effect on calcium levels. And in this particular podcast, we'll focus on hypercalcemia. That is an adjusted calcium level above the normal upper limit of 2.6. We will be covering calcium metabolism, causes, signs and symptoms of hypercalcemia, investigations and how that can help us to identify the cause, and finally, management in the acute setting. I would like to say it's an honour to be able to teach on this wonderful platform in this format, and I hope that I will be able to shed some light on how to approach patients that do present with this. First of all, why is calcium important? Calcium plays a vital role in nerve conduction, muscle contraction for both skeletal and cardiac muscle, bone health, and the clotting cascade and blood coagulation. Hypercalcemia itself is a common problem, with primary hyperparathyroidism being the most common cause, with its prevalence increasing with age and in the female population. Now, in order to understand disorders of the parathyroid glands and abnormal calcium levels, we must first understand calcium metabolism. Our greatest calcium stores are in our bones, where around 98% of our calcium resides, and we have a small amount in our circulating blood and a tiny amount intracellularly. Blood calcium levels are regulated by two hormones, parathyroid hormone, otherwise known as PTH, and calcitonin. PTH is secreted by the chief cells in the parathyroid gland in response to low calcium levels. Humans have four parathyroid glands and each one is tiny, just slightly larger than a grain of rice, and they are located on the posterior aspect of the thyroid gland in the neck. PTH acts in three different ways, on bone, kidney, and indirectly on the gut. On the bone, PTH binds to osteoblasts, which increase expression of rank ligand and that signaling pathway. And as a result, this stimulates osteoclast precursors and therefore osteoclast production. And remember, osteoclasts claw away bone. They break it down and release calcium into the blood. In the kidneys, PTH acts on the distal tubule and collecting ducts to increase calcium resorption, but also decreases phosphate resorption. In the kidney, PTH also upregulates the activity of 1-alpha-hydroxylase, an enzyme that stimulates conversion of calcifidiol, that is 25-hydroxyvitamin D, to calcitriol, 1-25-hydroxyvitamin D, also known as the active form of vitamin D. Subsequently, increased activated vitamin D will increase calcium absorption via the small intestine. The other hormone we mentioned is calcitonin, which is secreted by the parafollicular cells of the thyroid gland when calcium levels are high, and it has an opposite effect to PTH. It inhibits osteoclast activity on bone, so less bone is broken down, which means less calcium is resorbed into the blood, and it also inhibits calcium and phosphate resorption in the kidneys allowing them to be excreted in the urine. Just very quickly, I'll mention a few causes of hypercalcemia, and these include primary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism, malignancy, certain types of multiple endocrine neoplasia, drugs such as lithium and thiazide diuretics, vitamin D toxicity, granulomatous diseases such as sarcoidosis and TB, hyperthyroidism and Addison's disease.
Now let's move on to the symptoms of hypercalcemia. And the symptoms will depend on the severity and speed of onset. In fact, many patients are asymptomatic and a high calcium level may just be picked up incidentally on routine blood tests. But the classic quartet of symptoms is stones, bones, groans and psychiatric moans. Stones, we're talking about kidney stones because when there's too much calcium, the kidneys try to increase calcium excretion. So urinary calcium will be high, but as a result, there'll be an increase in fluid losses via the kidney too, resulting in dehydration. And this predisposes formation of calcium oxalate kidney stones. Bones, you get bone pain as the calcium has come from clawed away bone, causing them to become weaker, which can lead to conditions such as osteomalacia, osteoporosis, and pathological fractures. Abdominal groans, you can get some abdominal pain or discomfort and other GI symptoms such as nausea and vomiting and psychiatric moans because calcium imbalances can cause things like depression, anxiety and confusion. Now, a few other common symptoms to be aware of are thirst and increased urinary frequency. So that's polyuria and polydipsia. And if those two terms sound familiar, you're right because they are also diabetes symptoms. And in fact, hypercalcemia can actually cause a form of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Other general symptoms patients might experience are tiredness, weakness, loss of appetite, and sometimes in the acute and severe setting, they might have acute renal failure, pancreatitis, or certain arrhythmias. Now, what might you find in a patient when you go to examine them? Well, first of all, you'll probably notice their neurological status. They might seem a little bit drowsy, confused, and probably have an element of delirium. They might look cachectic from weight loss. You should do a fluid status examination, and you'll probably find that their fluid deplete because they're peeing out absolutely loads and loads of water. If you suspect malignancy, you might want to examine the patient's lymph nodes, and you might find that they have an element of lymphadenopathy. If you do a neurological examination, the classical finding is slow or absent reflexes, and this is because Calcium is important for propagation of action potentials and muscle contraction. Now, moving on to investigations. But before we get on to talk about that, I'd just like to mention the sponsors of this episode. And this episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. And that's help as in H-E-L-P. And guys, for all of you listeners who are medical students and are feeling stressed with revision and upcoming exams, sometimes this can get quite overwhelming and we have all been there. If you feel like things are getting a bit much for you, then BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and to help you. You can talk to a therapist in a completely private and online environment at your own convenience. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to help that may not be available in your area. And all you have to do is just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs and then they can get you matched with the therapist in just under 48 hours. After this, you then schedule a secure video and phone session. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages and everything you share is absolutely and completely confidential. You can also request a new therapist at no additional charge anytime. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just to make things even better, there is a special offer to all of you MedTalks listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp by entering the URL betterhelp.com slash medtalks. That's better, 
com slash medtalks. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. If you hadn't already got your high calcium level, well, you'd first find that out by doing a bone profile, and that will also give you a phosphate level too. You should do a full blood count, use an ease to check kidney function, a vitamin D level, liver function tests to check the albumin and ALP, but the most important test you want to do is the PTH, and that is the parathyroid hormone level. One thing worth noting is that when you take blood and send it to the lab, the lab will analyze the total serum calcium, and this actually consists of calcium in two different forms. The free ionized calcium, which is floating in the blood, which is the active form that we are interested in, and the calcium that is bound to proteins, most often albumin, which is in an inactive form. And it is only really abnormal levels of the free ionized calcium in the blood that causes complications. Now the lab will do us clinicians a massive favor and actually take into account the albumin levels and give us an adjusted or corrected calcium level. And this is what we base our diagnosis of hypercalcemia off. Other investigations you can do, you can do an ECG for which you might find bradycardia, atrioventricular block, or a shortened QT interval. And if you happen to have done some form of imaging, because of increased osteoclast activity, you might find some lytic bone lesions, which might suggest malignancy. Any further investigations will depend on the PTH level and trying to identify the cause. And we'll go over this in a lot more detail next. So what are the causes of hypercalcemia? Well, these can be split into two main categories. The first category is PTH dependent hypercalcemia. And this is where we have a high calcium level with an inappropriately raised and sometimes normal PTH. Primary hyperparathyroidism is the commonest cause of this type of high calcium level, and in fact, the commonest cause of hypercalcemia overall. And in 80% of cases, this is caused by a solitary parathyroid adenoma, which is a benign tumor of the parathyroid gland. In about 15% of cases, it's due to parathyroid hyperplasia. And again, just going back to bone metabolism, if we have an increase in PTH, this causes increased osteoclast activity and bone breakdown, increased calcium resorption in the kidneys, and indirectly increased absorption from the gut. Tertiary hyperparathyroidism is another cause where there are very high PTH levels. It results from chronic secondary hyperparathyroidism, where the body has sort of been in a chronic low calcium state, usually due to chronic kidney disease or vitamin D deficiency. And as a result, the parathyroid gland has been trying so, so hard to increase its PTH production. Think of the parathyroid glands trying to get stronger, stronger. They enlarge, resulting in gland hyperplasia, and they get so strong, they become autonomous and say, right, that's it. I'm doing my own thing. And they no longer respond to the feedback mechanism of high calcium. Other causes include rare endocrine syndromes, such as multiple endocrine neoplasia. Type 1 multiple endocrine neoplasia is easily remembered by the P's, three P's. You get parathyroid hyperplasia, a pancreas endocrine tumour, which is usually a gastrinoma or an insulinoma, and a pituitary prolactinoma. In men type 2A, along with parathyroid hyperplasia, you also get a pheochromocytoma and a medullary thyroid cancer. And as we briefly mentioned earlier, other causes 
include drugs such as lithium and thiazide diuretics. Now, moving on to our second category of hypercalcemia, that is PTH-independent hypercalcemia. So this is where we have a high calcium level, but the PTH is appropriately suppressed. So we have a low PTH. And this suggests that the high calcium is being driven by something other than PTH and the parathyroid glands. And if we land ourselves in this scenario, the thing that should be at the top of your mind is malignancy, because overall, this is the second most common cause of hypercalcemia. And malignancy does this via two mechanisms of action. Malignant tumours, usually breast, lung cancers, head and neck cancers, and some kidney cancers, can secrete something called parathyroid hormone-related protein, or parathyroid hormone-related peptide. And this mimics PTH. It works in exactly the same way to increase calcium levels. If the cancer spreads to the bone and causes bony destruction, again, that bone breakdown will increase calcium levels in the blood. And this is more commonly seen in breast cancer and multiple myeloma. Now, if we suspect malignancy to be the cause, then we have to investigate it further. And we should start simple by just doing a full examination of the patient. Abdominal exam to feel for abdominal masses, uh, breast exam perhaps to look for breast lumps, and then take it from there. Perhaps if you find a breast lump, you might want to do an ultrasound of the breast, um, starting with simple investigations. If we're looking for multiple myeloma, you'd want to do a serum and urine protein electrophoresis and testing for urine bentstones proteins. And you should probably consider some cross-sectional imaging, so a CT chest abdopelvis with contrast. And briefly talking about the other causes of hypercalcemia, so we've got vitamin D toxicity, um, which will massively increase calcium absorption in the gut, Addison's disease, an initial test to investigate this might be a 9am cortisol level, thyrotoxicosis, for which you would check thyroid function tests, and sarcoidosis and TB, for which you might do a chest x-ray, which also might show signs of a possible lung cancer. Finally, moving on to management. This is all dependent on how high the calcium levels are, if the patient presents with symptoms, and if the onset is acute or chronic. Mild hypercalcemia occurs in patients that have a adjusted calcium level of less than three and they are asymptomatic. And the first thing we would want to do is do a medication review. So we stop any thiazide diuretics, consider stopping lithium, but that's a mood stabilizer, so we'd probably have a chat with their psychiatrist first before we make any medication changes to that. And we would encourage oral fluid intake. Anyone that has a calcium level of more than three or they have symptoms, we would call that moderate hypercalcemia. And I think in most trusts, generally above a level of about 3.4 or 3.5, we call that severe. Again, after medication review, the first thing you want to do is rehydrate with intravenous fluids to combat the fluid losses from the kidney. And your fluid of choice is 0.9% normal saline, and you'd give one litre of that over four hours. And in these patients, you can actually quite aggressively rehydrate them. You can give up to about four to six litres a day. But as always with IV fluids, be careful with our elderly patients and our patients with some form of heart failure, as there are at most at risk of fluid overload. 
you might want to consider getting an endocrinology review uh, or if you suspect malignancy, maybe an acute oncology review. Another medication that we would use are, or another medication class is bisphosphonates. And in my trust, we use something called IV pomidronate. And bisphosphonates work by reducing bone resorption. However, it is worth noting that these will take at least two or three days to kick in. If your patient has any form of cardiac dysfunction, if they've got an arrhythmia or severe neurological impairment, or their adjusted calcium level is over four, that is essentially life-threatening hypercalcemia. And absolutely get on the phone to someone who can provide you with specialist advice on how to manage them. Um, they might suggest a medication called calcitonin, which will act rapidly, but the effects only last about four to six hours. In terms of long-term management, well, it is effectively treat the cause. In primary hyperparathyroidism caused by a parathyroid adenoma, the definitive treatment is a parathyroidectomy. However, in patients that aren't surgical candidates, a medication called sinicalcet can be given. And this medication increases the sensitivity of the parathyroid cells to a raised calcium. So it's useful in primary or tertiary hyperparathyroidism. In terms of malignancy, well, probably don't have much hope there, unfortunately. You can try and treat the cause, but if the disease is already widespread, I think your options are quite limited. In TB and sarcoid, um, steroids may have a role, but you would definitely want to seek a respiratory opinion first. And in hyperthyroidism or Addison's disease, you might want to get an endocrine review. In primary care, one of the things you might consider is ordering a DEXA scan for the patient just to assess their bone health. And even if the calcium levels are just mildly elevated and the patient is asymptomatic, you might just adopt a watch and wait approach. This brings us towards the end of this podcast. And I'm just going to recap the important points that we've covered. Hypercalcemia is a common presentation. The commonest cause is primary hyperparathyroidism caused by a benign parathyroid adenoma. And in this situation, we will have high calcium levels and high PTH. The second commonest cause is malignancy, where you might have a cancer that produces PTH-related protein. And in this situation, our calcium levels will be very high, but our PTH level will be appropriately suppressed. Acute management, if the calcium level is less than three, involves a medication review and stopping thiazide diuretics and increasing oral intake. In moderate or symptomatic hypercalcemia, you definitely want to admit these patients to the hospital and pump them with normal saline. And you can consider bisphosphonates. In the long term is treat the cause. They might need a parathyroidectomy. If they've got a cancer or malignancy, get acute oncology inputs. But unfortunately, if the cancer is already widespread, they probably don't have much hope. Right, that is all, folks. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. Um, please remember to share with your friends and peers and anyone else who might find these useful. Um, feel free to leave us a comment on the Apple podcast platform, or you can send us feedback via Instagram at medtalks.uk remember to subscribe to our podcast platforms to stay tuned for more upcoming episodes in the next talk we will talk about hypocalcemia 
Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye.